Let's do it. Well, good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. This being the Easter holiday, I'm off messing around on vacation, but I would never leave you in the lurch. What I've done is gone back to the top secret Automotive Hour vault. I pulled up a program from way back in 2009. As a matter of fact, it was Easter weekend 2009, a show that I had put together at that time, and it's not a regular call-in show like we do. What I've done is taken several past shows, taken some questions that I thought made pretty good points cut them, paste them, and put them together with a little commentary in between. And I think we'll have a real interesting program. Hope you might pick up some tips and some stuff that could save you some money on down the road. Just in case you have a question and you'd like to get answered, just go ahead and email. That is agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. If you go to our website, look at the bottom of the page. There's a contact button on every single page, or you can just go to the contact on the menu. Either way, will get you right to me. Go ahead and type in your question and send it to me. I'll get an answer back to you within 24 hours. That's the easiest way to get your questions answered. Of course, you can also go to the vehicle question section on the very same website. You may very well find your answer right there. If not, feel free to go ahead and send me an email. I don't ever mind. Now, there's all sorts of other good things on that website. You might want to consider registering on the site. What registration does is give you other special privileges. The reason we have that is because with the nature of things being the way they are in the web, certain things will open the site up to vulnerability from spy bots and such as that. So registration just proves that you are a real live person and that you do want the information that you're looking for. A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. That's Agco Auto. Stands, of course, for Altazan's Garage Company. Pop on there and look around see what you think. I think it'll be time well spent. Hey, let's get started with our program. Anyone who's a regular listener on the Automotive Hours probably heard me say many times how important communication is. Communicating with the shop, letting them know exactly what it is that you need fixed on the car. And I think that an awful lot of problems that occur out in the trade are a direct result of a lack of communication, both on the part of the shop and sometimes on the part of the customer. It's just really, really important to get your message across clearly. First thing you want to do is you want to concentrate on giving the shop the symptom. Tell them what the car is doing rather than telling them what it is that you want them to do. For instance, you don't walk in and say, I want a front end alignment. If you do and they do a front end alignment and it doesn't fix the problem, you still got the same problem. It's really not their fault. So instead, what you do is go in and say, hey, my car vibrates at 60 miles an hour. I can feel it in the steering wheel when I'm going 60 miles an hour. That way you're giving them the symptoms rather than telling them what it is that you want them to do to the car. And that's just really, really important. Our first caller illustrates a very good example of giving exact symptoms. As it worked out, this particular gentleman did bring his vehicle to the shop, and because he had done such a good job of describing the symptoms, we were able to diagnose it, and it did turn out to be exactly what we thought it was on the air. Good morning, Frank. Yes, good morning. I have a 1999 Chevrolet with a 350. Mm -hmm. has a four-speed electronic transmission. Yes, sir. And when I got off the interstate the other day, you know, I had been driving from Blue Bonnet up to the airport, First time I took off in about 15 feet, I thought it had a big surge in the drive line and did that several times. Mm-hmm. And then I got home, checked the fluid when it cooled down, it was okay, and then it didn't do it again. And someone said it might have been the torque converter that locks up when you're on the way and it didn't release. No. No? No. <laughs> More likely, Frank, it's going into high pressure mode because it detects a slipping. And when that happens, it runs the pressures to maximum. 
and so it's going to really bang when it shifts. That's now, what it did. once you turn the key off and turn it back on, it resets until it happens again. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is the reason why it went into that mode. If you bring it to someone who knows what they're doing, like you bring it to Agco, we can go in with a scan tool, and it's going to be a code stored in the transmission computer P1870. What okay. 1870 means is it's a maximum adaptive pressure. When it starts to see the transmission slip, it starts to boost the pressure to try to account for it. When it gets to a certain point, it's got it at maximum amount of pressure and it's still slipping. That's when it's going to start doing it. It kicks it into a limp mode. Now, real dangerous when that happens, number one, because it can break a lot of things because of the high pressure. And number two, it bypasses the cooler on the radiator because the radiator can't stand that much pressure. So you're not getting any cooling to your transmission. Generally, the reason it's slipping is because you've got either a plugged-up filter, which means you've got some clutch material or something in it. In other words, it's, it's kind of like the early warning sign you're fixing to have a failure in most cases. Okay, the transmission was serviced here not long ago, maybe 2,000 miles well, back. Well, when you say service, you mean you went somewhere and got flushed or you had a proper service done on it? Well, they dropped the pan, okay. changed the filter, and refilled it with fluid. Okay, well, it's got fresh fluid and fresh filter on it, then you probably have an internal problem inside the transmission. It could be as simple as a stuck solenoid, or it could be the transmission is just slipping and is seeing that, and that's what it's trying to prevent. So what would be best is to get it in to someone who knows what to do and let them put a pressure gauge on it, determine what the problem is. How many miles are on it, Frank? It's got 60,000. 60, low mileage. At that yeah, lower mileage, you may be able to go in and just change that solenoid, which is fairly easy. Right. But if you let it go on, you're going to end up with a transmission. Yeah, because that's the first time it's done and hadn't done it since. But it Normally, you're going to have to drive it a good ways to get it to do it. Right. You okay. see, what happens if you're just on short trips, it starts to slip, it starts to adapt, and then you turn it off, it resets. On a right. long trip, it kind of accumulates, and that's when it's going to do it. Normally, after driving an hour or two, like take it down to New Orleans and back, and that's when you're going to see it. Okay, thank you. It's kind of an early warning sign. If you catch it now, you may be able to fix that relatively easy and at relatively low expense. But if you let it go and tear something up, you're going to end up with a transmission. All right, thank okay. you. Okay, thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Now, clear communication and quick action on Frank's part saved a whole transmission rebuild. So instead of a $2,500 possible job, ended up being able to repair it for about 20% of that cost. And he's got a transmission that will last him many, many, many more miles. So what you want to do is go in, give the symptoms of the problem that you're having. And sometimes that's not as easy as it sounds, but you have to try. Don't be afraid to get really verbose on that. Go ahead and just tell it like it is. Just go ahead and continue. Now, if you just find yourself unable to communicate with the shop, what I would suggest is to see if they can let the technician ride in the car with you and then point out the exact problem to them. In other words, here it is. That's what it's doing. That's what I want fixed. The second part is to get it in quickly. Don't delay. I know it's human nature to put off things that are unpleasant, and certainly car repairs don't rank up there as one of the most fun things in the world. But when you do put things off, they tend to get worse and worse. For instance, in Frank's particular situation, what it was, the torque converter control solenoid. We were able to just drop the valve body, replace the solenoid, service the transmission, and we found a small leak, which we fixed as well. That prevented having to totally rebuild the transmission because if the torque converter continues to slip, it's going to generate heat, it's going to destroy the torque converter, then the metal from the converter is going to go throughout the transmission, and he would end up with a complete rebuild. Now let's go to our next caller and just sort of a different twist on the same sort of a problem. And we've got Steve online. Good morning, Steve. Morning, Bruce. Yeah. I've got a 2004 Toyota Corolla. Okay. I had a pothole, and I had the strut 
replaced and alignment, and then it was still vibrating some, and then they changed out the motor mounts, and then it's still, I don't know, they don't even think they can do anything about it, and it seems like the vibration to me is, some people don't even notice it, but if you drive it long enough, you feel it. Yeah, whose uh, idea was it to change the struts and do the alignment and all that stuff? Them. I mean, they said that it, because they showed that the truck was actually bent. Well, maybe it was, but see, if you want the problem with the vibration fixed, Steve, you have to go in there and say, okay, what I want fixed is this vibration. It's not always there. I feel it at, let's say, 60 miles an hour in the steering wheel, da-da-da-da. Can the technician ride with me? Let me show him what I want fixed. Huh? Then you'll get the problem fixed. Uh-huh. But see, if you just bring it to them and say, check my car and tell me what it needs, well, they checked it. It had a bent strut, so they changed yeah. the strut. Right, but I took it back over there, and I said, it still had this vibration. We'll change out the motor mount. And, and did they say I, that was going to fix the vibration? Yeah, yeah, okay. they did. Did it not fix the vibration? No, it didn't. Well, there you go. I want my money back, or I uh-huh. want the problem fixed. Uh-huh. Plain and simple. It's just a communication problem. You're going to have to show them the vibration. Because, see, we get this a lot. We do a lot of this kind of work. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to put a guy in the car with you. You can go drive, and you can say, that's the vibration I'm going to fix. Uh-huh. And then I'm going to tell you what it's going to take to fix that, and when it gets through, it's going to be fixed. Because uh-huh. mo- mo- motor mounts can cause some yeah, vibration. Yeah, can cause a vibration. But See, there are a lot of other things, and they could change a lot of things before you'd actually get to the right one. You may be talking about two different vibrations. See, he may be feeling one, you're feeling another, and it's just not getting communicated clearly. The only way you're ever going to get that problem solved is to get the tech in the car, not the service rider, but the guy working on the car, and say, okay, here's the vibration. You see that? And the guy says, yep, I see it. I want that fixed. Uh-huh. And then you'll let him go ahead and tell you what it's going to take to fix it. Say, do you guarantee that's going to fix it? Yeah, I guarantee it. Okay, well, now if it doesn't fix it, I want my money back. Uh-huh. See, that's the way that's going to have to get solved. Uh-huh. So I, I take it back. I mean, you already spent a lot of money, obviously, with this same people. I just go back to them and say, look, I still got the vibration. What I'd like right. to do is have the mechanic ride with me. Let me show him the vibration I'm talking about and then go from there. It could be something like a bent wheel. It could be a bent hub from hitting the curb. It could be on and on and on. We could probably talk about it for two days, the things that will cause a vibration. But the mm-hmm. point is, you're going to have to get the guy working on the car in the car with you, point out the vibration and say, that's what I want fixed. Mm-hmm. And then, then you'll get it fixed. All right. All righty? Okay. Good luck to you, man. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Now, in Steve's case, I think he was doing a real good job of trying to communicate, but it uh, sounds like the shop just wasn't listening. Now, you have to be really clear, and you have to get to someone who can actually do something about what it is you're talking about. For instance, if you get the technician in the car and show him, hey, that's the vibration. Do you feel it? Yes, I do. Now, if you pick the car up and you've still got the same vibration, then obviously you're dealing with someone who's either incompetent or just doesn't care. Now, that goes into a whole different situation. But the thing is to establish a what if. For instance, you're telling me it needs this, 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 this. What if that doesn't fix the problem? And you want to clearly establish that up front. Because if you get your car back and it's still doing the same thing, after you've clearly communicated the problem, now you either want your money back or you want them committed to fix the problem. This stuff about, well, we're going to try this and we're going to try that and see what happens, that's real expensive and it just soon not be at your expense. So this kind of comes down to choosing the proper shop to start with. If you go to our website, on the front page, there's a little article in, and it's called Choosing a Great Shop. And that's one of the things that we talk about a good bit. Great shops never use menu pricing. In other words, you go in as a big menu like McDonald's and you pick out a burger and a fry and a whatever. The shop is going to diagnose the problem. They don't want you to walk in and diagnose the car yourself. They don't want you to have to do that. The thing with the menu pricing is it takes the shop off the hook for the diagnosis. Obviously, diagnosis is the most complicated part of the repair. 
what that generally tends to indicate is that a shop is just there to sell you something, not to actually fix the car. If they can't diagnose the problem, you really shouldn't be dealing with such people. You need to go to someone who can diagnose the problem, who can make the repair, and will guarantee that that is going to fix your problem. That's when you know you got a great shop. The key is to be sure you select a good shop up front, someone who can diagnose the problem and can repair the car. Now, what happens if you have to take the car out of that shop, bring it to another shop, there's going to be a considerable amount of expense involved. Number one, you've wasted all the money you've already spent with these people that you may or may not ever be able to get back. But number two, and perhaps even more important, when a quality shop comes in, they are now not only going to have to diagnose the original problem, but they're going to have to retrace the steps of everything that the first shop did or even could have done to the vehicle. Now, that's going to add a great deal more time and a great deal more expense. I know every single week someone calls us and said, I had my car at da-da-da shop, and we had the brakes redone, and now the car is shaking and shimming, and the ABS lights on, and on and on and on. Well, we generally will try to get them to take it back to the original shop and see if they can straighten the mess out. But if they can't, what I have to do is go through every possible thing that that shop could have done because if I don't and I overlook something, they're going to have another problem. Whenever I'm fixing a car that's coming from the factory, for instance, we have a car, everything's okay, but the brakes are worn out. All I have to do is fix the problem, just the brakes, because I know everything else is okay. However, when I'm going behind someone, did they put the wheel cylinder on backwards? Did they use the wrong wheel cylinder? Did they put the springs in the wrong place? Did they use the wrong springs? What else could they have done? Did they file a notch or cut or slot or groove something that they shouldn't have? So basically, the entire car has to come apart, which involves a whole lot more time and a whole lot more effort. So always take and spend all that time that you would have wasted there up front investigating the reputation and the quality of a shop. And just a great article on the website called How to Recognize Quality. Read that article along with How to Select a Great Shop, and I'll bet you you can avoid all of these kinds of problems. Hey, we're going to take a quick little break, and we'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Good morning, and welcome back to Automotive Maintenance School, fellas. Good morning. Yesterday, we left off talking about how to upsell your customers with the sneaky $24.99 oil change. Yeah, they come in for the special, and bam, we hit them with other problems we just happen to find while doing the oil change. <laughs> yeah, and then you tell them it's a good thing you came in for our oil change special. Yeah, you may never have known you needed all this work. Yeah, sound like you fellas did your homework. I just hope none of your customers did. <laughs> Agco Automotive has this to say about low-price oil changes. Take advantage of them. And if you get a list of recommended repairs, bring your vehicle to us for an honest opinion of what, if anything, needs to be fixed. Want to know more details about upsells and wallet flushes, plus tons of other automotive info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Now I'm noise off the river to ride. Don't mind it cause the man with the whiskers has a lot behind it, but I can't keep punching with it. Well, welcome back. If you just join us, this is the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Alzan, with a special pre-recorded show. This is an archive show from back in 2009. I hope you really enjoy it. Now let's go back to our show. We were talking in an earlier segment about communication with the shop. And of course, communication problems are always a problem. Sometimes it's a matter of the shop just not listening. Sometimes it's a matter of just not getting to the right person in the shop. Our next caller has a slightly different issue with communication. Lewis, my son has a Ford F-150 truck. Mm -hmm. 
V8, and the engine destroyed itself at 68,000 miles. Okay. Hmm. They told him that the uh, fuel injection system caused the failure. I was a little surprised to hear that. Do you ever heard of that? Well, the fuel injection system in and of itself is not going to cause a failure without having a check engine light on for sure. Now, if it drove it around with a check engine light on, that's pretty much what destroyed the engine. If you got an injector that's stuck open, it could be dumping raw fuel down in the motor, and yeah, that can do it. It's going to wash all the rings out. It'll wipe it out pretty quick. Okay, what happened is they rebuilt or replaced the engine. Mm-hmm. It failed again three months later. Mm-hmm. $1,000, and they charged him 3500 And the second time, they didn't charge him anything. Right. And then the next thing that happened was the catalytic converter. Well, that's a normal progression. If you've got an injector problem, what's happening is it's, it, the engine's running extremely rich. And okay. when it's running rich, it's washing all the oil off the cylinder walls, which is going to make the engine burn up. But all that extra gas has got to go somewhere. It goes in the catalytic converter, and the converter tries to burn it up rather than expel it in the atmosphere. Well, when you start pouring gasoline on a fire, it's going to get hotter and hotter. It's going to melt the cat down. I would say, Saul, without being there, without seeing it, it just sounds kind of like a misdiagnosis. I'd have to go back and talk to somebody about that. That seems like a logical progression of problems. Well, Lewis, you know, they don't put everything on the service tickets, you know what I mean? Uh I know a little bit about the stuff because I started out in automotive mechanics Mm -hmm. years ago. Mm -hmm. I'd like to go down, sit down and talk to him and get the straight poop, you know, because now he's worried about... What's going to happen next? Well, I can tell you, Saul, there's millions of those trucks out. It's pretty much almost the number one selling truck off and on between them and Chevrolet. And it's not a common problem. I mean, I've seen four sixes go 300,000 miles. So it's yeah. not like there's a factory defect in that engine. Something wrong with this truck that got misdiagnosed, it sounds like. If you go in, the motor burns up, and you put another motor, but you don't yeah. cure what made it burn up. Right. Then it's kind of silly. It's almost like putting an air conditioning compressor on a car. Yeah. Well, that's silly. The compressor don't fail. They fail for a reason. Well, Just exactly putting a new right. compressor, what's going to happen? Three months later, you put another compressor. And three months sure. later. So it's the same sort of a thing here. Sounds like there is an issue there. You need to go in and you may have got it resolved by now. But I think you are wise to want to go in. And I would probably asked to speak with a service manager as opposed to, say, a service writer, because a service writer in a dealership really doesn't have a lot of stroke to do right. anything. I'd ask to speak to the service manager, and if at all possible, I'd ask to speak to the tech that worked on it, because he'll yeah. probably give you the straight scoop more so than the service manager will. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like some good advice. Yeah, that's, that's what I do. And just say, hey, guy, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. Don't get me wrong. I just want to know what happened because I'm concerned, right. and I don't want it to happen again. Right. I mean, I don't think that's out of the ordinary to ask something like that. I, certainly, you're, you're entitled to that information. Sure. Thank you, Louis. All right, man. Like some good advice. Okay, sir. Thank you. Appreciate you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now, fortunately, in Saul's case, he was able to have the problem resolved without costing him any more money. A repeat performance is bad enough to have to go back and have their vehicle repaired again, but you don't want to have to do it at your expense, certainly. Now, obviously, the better thing is not have to have it go back a second time at all. But again, what happens here is that the communication becomes very, very important. Who said what? Now, after the fact, there's one way to really establish who said what, and that is to have things in writing. That's why it's very important to get an invoice that illustrates all the things that were done to the vehicle. We see this quite a bit where people will have a check engine light come on, then they have it repaired, and the light comes on again. Well, this time, maybe they bring it to me instead, and we check the car, and we find a problem. But we really don't know if it's the original problem or if it's another problem that's occurred because many times the shop didn't record what the original problem was. 
Every time a check engine light comes on, there's going to be a diagnostic trouble code that's associated with it. And that'll be a little code like PO300 or PO171 or something like that. When you get your invoice back, it should have the specific code listed that was addressed when they fixed the car. In other words, this is what was wrong. This is what we fixed. That way, should the light come on again, you at least know if it's the same problem again or another code. And that's very important on check engine lights, but it's important on everything else too. For instance, when you have a rebuilt transmission, you wouldn't just want a ticket that said rebuilt transmission. You want itemization of every part that was changed in that transmission. That's even more important where you have a repair done rather than, say, a total rebuild. What things were repaired, what things are covered, and what things are the warranty going to apply to. Let's go to our next caller with sort of a different take on the same subject. Good morning, Ron. Hey, how you doing this morning? Doing great, sir. Got a problem with a 2001 Ford Escort. I've had three mechanics look at it. Okay. The service engine light came on, and and after each one of them looked at it or worked on it, it'd go off for about an hour and come back on. Okay. I just had a complete tune-up done, and the light went out for about an hour, hour and a half, mm -hmm. but it came back on. So I'm going to go back to that last mechanic that did the tune-up. Yeah, see, a tune-up is not ever going to fix that problem. Now, if, if you're going in and you tell them, hey, give me a tune-up, then you're not going to expect the light to be off. you got to go and say, hey, my check engine light's on. Right. Well, that's why I put it in in the first place. Yeah, but the last guy who worked on it, did you go and tell him you wanted a tune-up, or you went and tell him you had a check engine light? I told him my, my check engine light was on. Okay, and he suggested a tune-up to fix it? He said the tune-up fixed it, but it didn't. Okay, yeah, well, you just need to know what code you got. Most likely, if they're trying tuning it up to get rid of a check engine light, they probably got a misfire code. There's many, many things that will cause a misfire. They're just misdiagnosing the problem. And it may be that you needed a tune-up anyway, and he says, hey, let's try this or something to that effect. I said, I wasn't there, so I don't know. Well, but, if he did the tune-up, he said it, there were no codes reading. Everything was normal. Well, you can't say that, though, because you may have to drive for several hours before you start getting codes. It has to pass all the readiness tests before it's going to start setting codes. Oh, I see. Okay. So anytime you clear it, you're not going to have anything for a few hours. Oh, I got you. you okay. So you got IM tests that have to complete before it's going to register a code. Okay. So what you have to do is is either go back to him and say, hey, look, we still got the same problem, or if you don't feel comfortable with that, you might want to go to someone who's more qualified to, to find the problem. There's really no sense in that kind of a scenario going on as long as you're going in and telling him, hey, I'm trying to fix this check engine light. Now, yeah. I can tell you the, the times when that will not be able to get done is if somebody's going in clearing the code before they bring it to the shop, by disconnecting the battery or going to a parts store and getting the codes cleared, then you go to the shop, he doesn't have anything to work with. He can't fix it. So right. what you have to do is leave the car alone, let the light come on, bring it to him, say, look, this is the light I want to fix. Then he can go in, re retrieve the data, and fix the car. Because we get that a lot of times. Folks will come in and say, look, I want to tune up on my car. So you check the car, it needs a tune-up, you do a tune-up, and they can, hey, I still got the light on. Whoa, whoa, what light? You didn't say anything about light. You said you want a tune-up. Oh, right. I thought that would get it. Well, you thought wrong. You see, that's not going to do it you got to go in and let them know what they're looking for, and they got to have the information. So each time you get it worked on, it makes it worse because the last guy cleared all the codes out. Well, that destroyed all the data that they need to fix the car, you mm -hmm. see. And then it comes back, and we may even be dealing with multiple codes. could have had a problem that the first guy misdiagnosed, the second guy misdiagnosed. They cleared all that data out, and those codes did not come back yet. The third guy got it. Maybe there was a misfire code, and he may have fixed that problem. But the other two codes popped back in the interim. So it's kind of hard to establish who did what at this point. 
what you may right. need to actually do, I'd go back and just nicely tell the guy, hey, I still got a light, let him pull up the code and see what it is, compare that to what code it had when he came in, and it should be written on your invoice because a good shop will always record the code they treated on the invoice. So if you got uh, the same code on the invoice that was there, then he didn't, he didn't fix it. If it's a new code, it could be the other shop cleared it out and just hadn't occurred again. See, because mm -hmm. it, it can take up to two or three weeks for a code to come back sometimes. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't just instantly run all the tests and all the problems don't occur instantly. For instance, let's say you've got a EVAP code, evaporative emissions code. That code will only run when you got between three quarters of a tank of gas and one quarter of a tank of gas. So let's say you got right at a quarter of a tank of gas and you go to the shop and they clear it out and it drops below a quarter and you drive around two or three days below a quarter. Then you fill it up. Then you drive around another week and a half until it goes to three quarters. When it gets three quarters, the light's going to come on. Well, that might have been two weeks later. You see uh, what I'm saying? Yeah. And if he cleared the code out and a misfire code came in and you brought it to a shop in that time frame, all he's going to know is you got a misfire code here, which he's going to mm. treat. But then when the gas tank gets to the right level, the other code comes back again and see, actually, the first guy did the problem and not the second guy. He's had no way to know about it. So it's, it's real, real, real complicated the way the system works. Best thing is to go back and find somebody you can work with and then give him all the information he needs. Drive the car. He may even ask you, look, would you mind driving the car around? Let me check and see what it is, what's in there right now. Drive the car around for a week or so. Let's make sure we've got all the data in there and then come back and let me check it again. Well, that's what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just go back to him and let him check it. Because, like I said, if you look on your invoice, he ought to have written down the code that he treated. No, he didn't do that. He didn't do that. Well, that's kind of a bad sign, in my opinion. Whenever I fix a car, I'm always going to record the code. In other words, check engine code P304, code P302, whatever it is. Write it down. That way everybody knows what they're paying for. It's kind of mm -hmm. like going to the grocery store and getting a bag of groceries and you get receipts as a bag of groceries. When you get right. home and your milk ain't there, well, did you pay for your milk? Who knows? You know, because it's not itemized out. So be sure in the future, whenever you get your car worked on, they record those codes for you. And that way, if you have another problem, you had a misfire code and he fixed that, and now the misfire code is fixed, but it's an evaporative emissions code or our EGR code, see, so we got a separate problem. Because there's roughly 2,000 different things can cause a check engine light, and there's only one light. So that light may keep coming on, but it could be a different thing each time. And without knowing what they're working on, you're really behind the eight ball. All right. Okay. Thanks so much. All right, man. Thank All you, Rod. Bye-bye. Now, clearly, we wish things would never go wrong, but auto repair is not an exact science, and sometimes things do. Now, when things do go wrong, that's when it's very important to have it in writing what's been done. Now, that not only protects the customer, but it also protects the shop. I've seen where people have come to me with a report of another shop, and they think they've been ripped off. And when I sit down and look at the evidence, I have to tell them, hey, I'm sorry, I think you've just miscommunicated with this shop. I don't see any evidence of anything being a ripoff. You've got multiple problems here. And sometimes that just can't be known up front. So it's important to have things in writing. That way you can get a good, fair understanding. And I think that's what most people are looking for is fair. People don't expect things to always go their way, but they do like to think they're always getting a fair shake. So that's what putting things in writing can help to establish, not only for the sake of the shop, but also for the sake of the customer. Now, of course, the best thing is to be careful to select the right shop up front, and that will greatly, greatly diminish the odds of things going wrong. If a shop knows exactly what the problem is they're trying to find, for instance, you've ridden with the technician, you pointed out the problem, 
then all they have to do is fix that problem. When they redrive the car, as long as the problem can be duplicated, they know for sure it's been fixed. So if they give you back the car anyway, now you know you've got a different type of issue and you're probably not going to be able to deal with these people. So that's why communication is just so important. Hey, we're going to break one more time and we're going to be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Mike, how are you and things at the dealership's maintenance department? Dave, things are great. You guys still running that low-priced $24.99 oil change at your place? Oh, yeah. Folks come in and we just happen to find a ton of other stuff wrong with their car. <laughs> Works, don't it? Sometimes when it's a woman, I make something up like, your flux capacitor has a leak. Yeah, or your strepanoid filter head needs to be replaced. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I gotta write that down. Agco Automotive wants to let you know how to stick it to the low-price oil chain shops. Go get the oil change and then take your vehicle and their list of recommended repairs to Agco for an honest opinion of what, if anything, needs to be fixed. And we'll fix only that. Want to know more details about upsells and wallet flushes, plus tons of other automotive info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O.com. Agco, it's the place to go. Final segment of the Automotive Hour. And just because today's show is pre-recorded, a composite show, that doesn't mean you can't get your questions answered. You can always log on to the website at www.agcoauto.com. That's Agco Auto, Altazan's Garage Company. And you can just send me an email, and I'll be glad to answer any questions you might have. While you're on the site, be sure you read the detailed topic section because there's lots and lots of good information in there. I don't just make those stories up. I generally do is I try to take questions that I'm getting either on the radio or in person at the shop or possibly even from emails from people who go to the website. And I try to write stories that will address the types of questions that I think they have. There's lots and lots of them on there. Information for just about anyone. One topic that you might want to read up on, and that is old tires with good tread. That's something that can be really dangerous to you and your family. And that's a tire that still has really good tread. It looks great, but it's six years or older. Well, there's been just a ton of information in the news lately about those types of problems. Tires that blow out, come apart, vehicles flipping over, even people have been killed many, many times. So be sure you read that, old tires, new tread. Another good one is on tire rotation. It's one of those simple things that everybody thinks they know just about everything about, but there's just tons and tons of misinformation on the topic of tire rotation. So you might want to read that. It gives you a lot of different information, four different scenarios for rotating tires, maybe some surprises. So pop on and see what you think, www.agcoauto.com. That's agcoauto.com. think you'll have a really good time and probably learn something to boot. We've been talking about communication and problems and problems that occur after cars are repaired and such as that. Many times cars have multiple problems. That is, they may have more than one problem. And sometimes those problems won't all show up at the same time. Now, sometimes multiple problems are also caused by one single thing. Let's go to our next caller. And we got Randy's been holding. Good morning, Randy. Morning, Lewis. Yes, sir. Yeah, on my 99 F-250 V10, you've most recently changed the carrier bearing in it. Okay. Okay. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with that. That's doing great. Okay, good. But I just made a two-hour trip in from Mississippi yesterday, mm-hmm. and truck did fine as normal, but uh, after I got in and went back out in it, the ABS light came on. Okay. 
Okay, made a little short trip with that. Mm-hmm. Wasn't too worried about it. Was going to check with you Monday on it. Mm-hmm. And I cranked up uh, this morning to, to go back on my two-hour commute. Yes, sir. And my transmission shifted out like I had a hard shift kit in it. Kind of hard and fast. Yeah, most likely that's the same problem, Randy. Most likely, and again, i, I got to stress most likely because we're going to have to check it to tell you for sure, but it's probably losing a speed sensor. And what happens when you don't get a speed sensor, the ABS doesn't know how fast you're going, so it's going to kick the light on to tell you. Also, the transmission is going to go into a fail-safe mode, which is going to run the line pressure way up. In other words, what it doesn't want is that transmission slipping and burning up. So there's a part in there called a pressure regulator that's going to kick up to maximum pressure to prevent that. And when it does, it's going to shift real hard. Now, it's real important to get that in and let's get it fixed because what will happen, you can actually break the case on the transmission. Okay. To uh, also bring up is the speedometer. Yeah, uh, it's all the same thing. Jumping. I wanted to see if it would be okay to drive in from Prairieville in it or should I have it towed to you? You could probably drive it, Randy, but you need to drive it real easy. In other words, you, when it's shifting real hard, you don't want to make it shift harder. So you want to be real easy on that throttle. Okay. But see, all three of those are going to tie in because they're all looking at the speed sensor. Now, it doesn't okay. mean the sensor's bad. It could be the wire going to the sensor. It could be the connector. It could be anything in that circuit. But it's losing the speed sensor signal. So it doesn't know what to do. So it goes to maximum pressure, which makes it shift hard. The ABS comes on, and the speedometer is going to start acting. All right, thank, thank you. Thank you, man. Bye-bye. Right. Now, many times, multiple symptoms will all result from the same problem. That's why it's always important when you're explaining the symptoms to the shop to give them as many things as you can because a lot of times saying something like my ABS light is on will give them a certain piece of information. But if you also mention, well, my transmission has been shifting funny and my speedometer is acting erratically, will give them just a whole lot more information. That way, with those type symptoms, directly to the speed sensor, check that first, most likely find the complete problem right there, and save you a whole lot of money. For instance, if they did not realize and weren't told that the speedometer acts up sometimes, they may drive it, the speedometer may not act up at all. Also, the transmission may not shift funny when they drive it. So they don't know about that at all unless you tell them. So now they're going to go check the whole ABS system looking for a problem that could have been diagnosed a whole lot faster, which means a whole lot less expensive to you. So always give a complete symptom to the shop. Give them as much information as you can. Even if you think it's not important, go ahead and let them know. And that way, they will most likely be able to go to the problem a lot faster and a lot easier. Now, our next caller has a little different problem. It's not really dealing with communication, but it's such a common problem that I thought we'd include it in this show. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, sir. How are you doing? Good morning. I have a 2002 Chevrolet Trailblazer. All right, sir. I recently took it to a local shop to have the brake pads changed, and they turned the rotors. Okay. And got it back. A couple weeks later, everything was fine. Well, a couple weeks later, it started making a squealing sound again, just like when the little metal prong. Yes, right. Mm Mm-hmm. It sounds just like that. Okay. So I pulled the front. It sounds like it's coming from the right front tire, uh-huh. which I had all the pads changed. Yes, sir. And I pulled the tire off, and I looked at it, and I can't see anything that could be wrong. I took my air hose, blew it out real yes, good. Mm-hmm. There was a little dust in there. Mm-hmm. And it's still making the noise when you apply the brake. Yeah. Steve, let me ask you this. While you were looking at it, did you happen to notice on the back of the pads where they touched the caliper? Did you see any grease, or was it nice and dry? Uh, I don't think I saw any grease. Well, See, that's where your problem is going to lie. The way General Motors actually quiets noise down, noise is vibration, okay? And all pads vibrate. And you can't stop the vibration. It's actually normal. However, the way you deal with it is there's a special grease called high-temperature caliper grease. 
and it goes between the pad and the caliper. And what that does, it allows that pad to vibrate all it wants, but it just moves freely back and forth so it doesn't produce noise. And if they didn't lubricate the pads when they put them in, see, when they put the pad in originally, the noise wasn't there because it could slide around. But as soon as it got a little rust formed on it where it started to stick, that's when you can start picking up the noise. Now, a couple of things you could do. One is you could try just remove the pads and grease up everywhere that metal touches metal. That means the back of the pad where it touches the caliper, where the ends of the pads touch the caliper. Everywhere metal is touching metal, go ahead and put some high-temperature grease on Another thing that we've done that have had really good luck with is the edges of those pads are square. Now, on some of the later model stuff, what they've realized, that square edge is kind of like a fingernail on a blackboard. It produces a squeal. So they just beveled the edges off on the newer pads. You might get a big file or something and just bevel that edge off just a little bit. Just knock the sharp edge off where it doesn't squeal against that rotor. Most of the time, that's going to cure your problem. If it does not, you might look at what type of pad they used on it. If they didn't use the OEM GM pads, a lot of pads are made nowadays, lifetime warranty and all that kind of stuff. They make them real hard. And when you make them hard, that's great. They last long, but they make a lot more noise. GM blends a pad specifically for that, so it doesn't make noise, doesn't make black dust in your wheels, and doesn't eat the rotors up. So if they use an aftermarket pad, that is characteristic of a lot of those. And generally, you can tell by the color of the pad. The original GM pads are going to be black, and they're going to have a part number stamped on the back. If these are blue or silver or... Yeah, these are blue, I think. Okay, blue. Well, well, yeah, that's going to pretty much be characteristic of that pad. Right. They're going to make noise. You may not ever get that noise out with that out. pad. What you might do is bring it back to them and say, hey, guys, I'm just not happy with this noise. Can you put a set of OEM pads on it? Pay them the 40 or $50 difference in price, depending on how much they charge you for the original pads, and go ahead and get OEM pads on it and have them grease them up properly when they put it together. That'll fix your noise. Okay, so even if I go ahead and put a, the grease on the back side of these and probably help, It probably you helps try some, it. but it most likely the noise is going to persist if you got that pad. What they do, they take one material and they produce it in big, huge rolls. They put it on every car that comes through. doesn't matter if it's a Toyota Corolla, Chevy pickup, or a Volkswagen Beetle. They all get the same material. Whereas when GM makes a pad, they specifically formulate a pad for that car. So I have two GM vehicles, and I noticed that on my other truck, too. Yeah. Well, when I changed the pads, I used just some cheap aftermarket well, pads. Yeah. And, and it did that, and I didn't know why. Yeah, that's, now that's it's why. It's happened to me twice. Now. Well, and you see, the worst part of it, Steve, not only are they going to make noise, in my experience, they also either wear out or warp the front rotors. What will happen in about a year or so, you'll hit the brakes and the steering wheel will start shaking. And that's because the harder pad does not remove heat from the rotor the way it should either. So you end up, pads last longer, yeah, but you end up eating up rotors. So you just take one problem and exchange it for another. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, hey, the sidewalk's wearing out my shoes. Let's make the sidewalk softer. <laughs> now he's wearing out the sidewalk. So if General Motors wanted a harder pad, they'd have put a harder pad. Because they got guys who do nothing. They live brake pads all day long. And they designed the proper pad for the vehicle. So it's one of those deals where you kind of trade one problem for another. And I, to me, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Oh, yeah. So is that just specific to GM? Or no, that's every that, car no. out there. Every car out there, and the imports are even worse than the domestics. But I always use the OEM pads, and I can tell you, we do a tremendous amount of brake work at AGCO, and I couldn't tell you the last time we had anybody come back and complain. Oh, okay. We, we well, always use the original pad. We always grease everything up the way it's supposed to be. If you just read all the factory bulletins and all, put it back the way God built it, you're not going to have any problems. Do I need to buy the, the factory pads from the from a dealership? you got to be very careful because AC Delco made the OEM pad. But now what you got to watch is Delco also makes an aftermarket set of pads called Durastop, which is no better than taking off. Uh, so you got to watch that you get the OEM pad, the original equipment manufacturer's pad, 
There are other places you can buy them, but you have to specify to them, I want the original equipment replacement. It's going to have that eight-digit GM part number on it, and it's going to probably cost you about 100 bucks a set. At least 100 At least 100 right. bucks, sometimes right. more than that. But that will tell you getting the OEM, because if the box says Durastop or something like that, it's just a aftermarket pad in a Delco box. So yeah. even if you go to the dealership, they might sell you Durastops. So you got to be very careful. You might call the dealer, ask him what he sells them for. Check around. There's a couple other places here in town that do sell Delco parts, but just make sure you specify you want the OEM pad. And then I'm going to be looking at about 100 bucks. Probably about 100 bucks a set for the pads, right. yes, sir. But okay. it's a lot cheaper than two new rotors. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and another set of pads. pads. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, in the long run, it would probably Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, it you will. know, sometimes the cheapest way out is the more expensive way in. Yeah. Well, that cleared up the questions I've been having for a while. Yeah. So, uh, I appreciate it. Good question, Steve. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you, man. Bye-bye. Steve's call addresses one of the most common automotive problems that we see today, and that is brake squeal. That is that annoying high-pitched squeal noise when you apply the brakes. Now, that's a little bit different from the noise you get when the brakes wear out, which generally, particularly on a GM car, you'll get the same type of annoying high-pitched squeal, but you'll hear it before you apply the brakes. It may even go away when you brake. This noise is when you actually brake, and it's very common after you've had a brake job that wasn't done exactly right. Now, we've had absolutely excellent results at Agco by using the original equipment pad. That's the pad made for and specified by the manufacturer, greasing everything up properly, making sure that everything is clean and lubricated properly, and putting it all together with a smooth rotor finish. That will all but eliminate all of your brake noise. Brake noise is always a vibration, and vibrations generally are a matter of something that's not lubricated, something that's not assembled correctly, or the wrong material being used. So if you got some brake squeal and you've had a brake job done, now you know what's going on. Hey, in our last call, one of my absolutely favorite listeners, Mr. Penny, brings up a great topic that I think is sort of timely, and that is fuel mileage and these devices on the market that's promised to give you all kinds of big fuel mileage increases. Hey, Lewis, how hey, y'all doing? Mr. Penny, how the heck are you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh. I heard on the Clarence Bug show the other day, Somebody called in about increasing gas mileage, changing uh, some kind of intake and a chip yeah. in the computer. Yeah. And I thought maybe you might like to run that by the people <laughs> this morning that, that it don't work. Yeah, <laughs> and I know you, you're being kind enough to, to set the question up just to bring the information out. There is no magical chip or magical device you're going to get that's going to increase gas mileage to any extent at all. In fact, the only thing that a chip can do is just shift the range of power and it can't make more horsepower it can change the range as it may bring it from 4,000 rpms down to 2,000 rpms or vice versa but it cannot actually create power gas mileage is a function it's basically just physics it takes x amount of energy to move x amount of weight a certain distance at a certain speed in a given design of engine so anything that you put on that engine is not going to have a drastic effect on that. If you look at the huge increases they've made in gas mileage over the last several years, most of those have come as a result of lowering the weight of cars, better aerodynamics on cars, less rolling resistance in cars, a lot of little bitty things that were engineered in. You remember that old story about the guy who invented a carburetor and it got 100 miles a gallon? Right. And all, man, mm -hmm. that's hogwash. <laughs> I don't care how you put the gas into the car, into the engine. It takes a certain amount of energy to move a car a certain distance. 
Now, you can slow down because that'll save energy. You can drive less distance. There's all kinds of factors, but none of this stuff that's out there on the market, that stuff's been around since I was a kid, probably since you were a kid. Right. Just doesn't do anything. A lot of times it can actually damage the car. Man, car makers are working just feverishly to get the best gas mileage they can. If they can't do it with all the resources they got, believe me, somebody on the Internet or somebody sells something in Papa Mechanics isn't going to do it. I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> there have always been rumors like oh, that. Oh, they have. It, it, it's, we, we just, as a nation, we're a conspiracy. We love to be conspiracy nuts. We love to think this is a conspiracy. Right. Good talking to you, All right, Lewis. Mr. Penny. Thank you, sir. Tell you later. Hello, uh, I will, sir. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Rumors of all sorts of fuel-saving devices have been around just as long as folks can remember. They used to be distributed through magazines and periodicals and such as that. Of course, now with the Internet, it's even easier for them to put out such blarney. There's just no magical device that you're going to attach to a car that's really going to affect the gas mileage to any degree at all. And most of that stuff is just a ripoff. Not only that, but some of it can actually damage the car. So anytime you see people making these outrageous claims of four or five miles to the gallon by some kind of little pill you put in your gas or some type of magnet you put on the fuel line or just anything like that, just say no. Save your money. Save the aggravation. Just doesn't work. The biggest saver of fuel, of course, is removing weight from the car. Most of the big increases that we've seen in later model cars has come from reduction of weight, improved aerodynamics. Now, one thing that a driver can do to drastically increase his fuel mileage, and that is change your driving habits. I know that might not be something pleasant to think about, but if you just slow down and just don't accelerate as fast, let the car coast when you're coming to a stop. You can make a major increase in your fuel mileage, maybe up to four to five miles to the gallon or even more. So that's something you can do that really will save some gas. Not only that, it may cut your stress level and cut that of the other people who are on the road. I really appreciate everyone listening this morning and every Saturday morning on the Automotive Hour. Preceding was my opinion based on experience in the automotive industry. Have a great week.